When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Leah Greenberg. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Samuel Kluze-Huneke about his book, A Queer Theory of the State, which is coming out this December 2023 with Floating Opera Press. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So Samuel Kluze-Huneke is Assistant Professor of History at George Mason University. A historian of modern Germany, his research focuses on the history of gender and sexuality, legal history, and the history of democracy and dictatorship. He is the author of States of Liberation, Gay Men Between Dictatorship and Democracy in Cold War Germany, which came out in 2022 with Toronto. And he's also the author of numerous articles, chapters, and essays. His work has appeared in the New Republic, LA Review of Books, and Boston Review, among other venues. Our book today, A Queer Theory of the State, is a short read on how queer theory has often been hesitant to align itself with the politics of the state, expanding on an earlier online essay that Sam wrote in The Point, offering a more optimistic perspective as it seeks to join historically anti-normative queer perspectives with the pragmatic need for the state. So before we explore the book further, I wanted you to tell us a bit more about yourself what brought you to the field of history, specifically German history, and what were some of your formative experiences in learning about queer theory? Yeah, um, that's, wow, that's an expansive question. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, I have just been interested in history since I was a kid. I remember reading a biography of Henry VIII, uh, which is sort of queer in its own way, right? I mean, six wives, um, <laughs> as I think like a 10-year-old and just being totally entranced. I lived in Germany many times as a kid. I started learning German uh, at the age of nine. And so those two interests really sort of grew together as I went through middle school and high school and then were really sort of confirmed or solidified in college where I was a German major, but also studied a lot of history. In terms of queer theory and queer studies, I am a gay man. And so there's sort of this obvious biographical connection to the field. Uh, and I really started exploring it in college when I decided to write a BA thesis on the author Klaus Mann, who was the son of Nobel laureate Thomas Mann. And I was particularly interested in him as one of the first openly queer authors in modern history. So he's this figure who sort of rebels against his parents' generation. He moves to Berlin 
in the mid-1920s at the age of 19 and immediately publishes a novel about his own experiences as a gay man. It's called, frequently referred to as a coming out novel. He continues to publish throughout the Weimar period of the 1920s and early 1930s on queer themes, publishing, uh, for instance, a play about two queer women uh, called Anya und Esther. And uh, so he, he's the sort of figure of queer Weimar and of, of queer history. And that was really the moment that I started delving into these fields. I, as I talk about in the book, I remember sitting at a cafe in college and I read Foucault's History of Sexuality in a single sitting. I just remember racing through it and thinking, oh, this is capturing so many things that either made sense to me intuitively, but I'd never had the language to express before, um, as well as new ideas that just sort of set my mind on fire. And then when I went to graduate school, I continued to explore these themes. I wrote uh, an early research paper on the history of gay suicide in sort of 19th and early 20th century Germany. And then I wound up writing my dissertation on queer men in East and West Germany, which became my first book, States of Liberation. So then I, I'm interested in uh, what brought you to write this book, which is not a traditional monograph. It's um, sort of a combination of a short history and almost a manifesto. Right. Uh, not exactly, though. Um, I, I took a look at the original essay that it draws from, and, and there you started with a question that a student asked you, which was something like, if you could wave a queer wand, what, right. what would you invent or, or what would you see in the world in terms of uh, shaping the state? Some, something along those lines. Um, and you actually depart from the MPOX crisis that was about a year ago in the States uh, in this version of the book. So if you could tell us a bit more about um, your process in, in writing this book mm-hmm. and, and, yeah, how that student got you thinking. Yeah. So, I mean, this book really is in some ways an encapsulation of both how I view the field of queer theory and queer studies, as well as where I see myself positioned within it. And so I guess there's a few sort of sources or, or, or backstories to this book. The first is through my writings for The Point, I had sort of developed this niche of covering books that looked at queer politics. Um, so, for instance, I had written a review for them on Javier Samper Vendrell's uh, The Seduction of Youth, which is a history of sort of queer politics in the Weimar era. Um, I had also um, look, reviewed uh, Kristen Godsey's uh, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism. So I'd sort of developed this portfolio with them. And then I finally came to review a book called The Last Man, um, and now I'm forgetting the name of it, but it's an intellectual biography of Foucault. Uh, uh, the Last Man Takes LSD, that's what it's called. Um, it's this intellectual history of Foucault that basically tries to tie him to neoliberalism and argue that in many ways he was a neoliberal thinker. And in that review, what really struck me and what I sort of developed or started to develop in that review essay was that queer theory doesn't have a theory of the state, right? Queer theory, and as I lay out in in the book, there's sort of two reasons for this. One is that queer theory is inherently 
antagonistic to the state. It sees the state as essentially an enemy of queer people. The other reason is that the way that, and I assume we'll sort of get into this, but the way that queer people think about power and think about politics essentially doesn't see the state as all that important. And so there's both this animus towards the state and this belief uh, that ultimately the state is not significant in advancing a queer politics. So I mentioned this in this review essay of this biography of Foucault. And it sort of sticks with me. And I think, well, it would be interesting to develop that idea further. Around that time, I was teaching my graduate course on the history of gender and sexuality, which is always a highlight for me. And the student, as you mentioned, poses this question during a conversation about Martin Duberman's sort of polemical book, Has the Gay Movement Failed? And she, as you said, asked this question, well, you know, if we could wave a queer magic wand, what would the result be? What would we change? What sort of world would we bring into being? And it really struck me that no one had a good answer for that, right? Because queer theory is so good at diagnosing what is wrong in the world and what is wrong in politics and society and culture, but it's actually not very good at coming up with positive solutions to those problems. And so that seemed like a good way to sort of start this essay that I wound up publishing online with the point. And I sort of, you know, I wrote that and it took me about two years to write that essay because it, I really wanted it to be that sort of encapsulation of how I think about the field, where I see myself in the field. I published it and sort of thought, okay, I've done that. Who knows what sort of an impact it will have, but it's out there. And then a few months later, the editor of Floating Opera Press, which is the press that's published A Queer Theory of the State, contacted me and said, would you have any interest in sort of expanding this into a standalone volume? They have a whole series called Critics Essays, which are sort of slim volumes, oftentimes actually on uh, works of queer theory. And I was really, I mean, obviously flattered by this and taken with the idea of developing some of these ideas a little bit more robustly. And so that's sort of the the Entstehungsgeschichte, the the origin story of of this work. So what you mentioned about, um, you know, how queer theory is very good at diagnostics, uh, very good at critique, um, it leads to a sort of paralysis. And that's sort of one of the key issues that you you return to, I think, is often a problem of the left. Um, uh, So what I am interested in then is maybe delving into what are some of the tools of queer theory that that can be utilized in terms of uh, shaping new perspectives and our understanding of power and how it relates to the state, and then perhaps in a more productive way. Right. So I guess, to my mind, in in my own sort of intellectual biography of queer theory, I mean, my entry into the field is through the work of Michel Foucault. And there are obviously several sort of thinkers who are very important to the field. Um, But to my understanding of the field, he remains unparalleled. And my one of my major takeaways from the work of Michel Foucault is in how he conceives of power. So up until this point, and obviously Foucault is not the only person to have ever conceived of power in this way, but generally up until him, we tend to think of power as hierarchical, 
as a product of sort of domination of high politics of the state, right? We think of it as a sort of top-down process of someone on top exercising power on people below. And Foucault comes in and says, no, 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 that's all wrong. Once we get to the modern era, once we start to have modern states and modern societies, power is a much more sort of nebulous capillary phenomenon. Um, You do obviously still have states that are making rules and regulations and laws by which people have to live. But Foucault identifies norms, normative power, as a much more significant element of how people live their daily lives, right? And so, uh, for instance, in his History of Modern Prisons, he identifies the panopticon as a sort of principle of modern life, right? This notion that we are somehow always being watched um, and that this structures our behavior even when we may not be being watched. So this notion that even though we might know that we are doing something in private, we're still going to behave according to these social norms. When he gets to the history of sexuality, he develops these ideas further and basically says up until the 19th century, you don't really have sexual identities. You don't have the homosexual. You instead have sexual acts. Um, And he has this famous line about how um, essentially the sodomite uh, becomes the homosexual. And essentially what he's saying is through the power of discourse, through sort of sexological discourse, these sexual identities get created and essentially shape the way that people live their lives. And and a whole host of other sort of secondary characteristics and assumptions are attached to people who identify with or are identified with certain sexual labels. And as a result of this, um, you know, Foucault's work is incredibly important, not just to queer theory, but also to queer activism in Western Europe and, and especially in the U.S., And basically because of this, many queer activists or many strands of queer activism tend to see deconstructing those norms as the real site of political activism. And so the point isn't so much, oh, we need to get the government to pass an anti-discrimination bill, but rather we need to get society as a whole to stop sort of having these prejudices about queer people. And you can sort of see this, for instance, in um, West Germany, in the West German gay liberation movement that springs up in the early 1970s. Um, They aren't necessarily, you know, directly being influenced by Foucault, but they're very much being influenced by this sort of set of ideas about political power and about the role of activism. And they certain strands, at least, of the movement are actually much more interested in deconstructing homophobia and actually deconstructing what they perceive uh, as internalized homophobia among queer people than they are in getting the state to pass this, that, or the other piece of legislation. And so many of the early uh, sort of protests and actions of these gay liberation movements are actually targeted at, for instance, gay bars, right? They'll go and sort of spread leaflets around gay bars in West Berlin um, because they're trying to, basically they view the subculture, the gay subculture that exists there as being characterized by forms of internalized homophobia that are much more damaging ultimately to queer people than whatever law might exist on the books. Um, So that's, you know, very much, um, I think you can see how this, ability to critique power and norms and sort of baked in assumptions 
shapes the queer movement in the U.S. and in other countries. Uh, another example I turn to in the book um, is that of ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, which was hugely influential and successful uh, at spurring the NIH in the U.S. to develop treatments for HIV and AIDS, um, and to also make those treatments available sooner to queer people. Uh, and they did this not with sort of traditional means of lobbying the state, although there was an element of that, uh, as Sarah Schulman points out in her recent uh, history of ACT UP New York, but they also do it through uh, what they call zaps, which are these sort of public stunts designed to embarrass or humiliate public officials. Um, they do it with things like ashes actions, where they throw ashes um, at prominent people. There's a famous one in DC where they throw ashes on the White House lawn. And so you can really see how the conceptualization of politics is not a traditional one. And that's where I think there's something really wonderful in queer theory, something really vital in helping us to understand politics and power, not just as this sort of top-down domination where you have to sort of go and plead your case to the highest official who will hear it. And I think precisely that relationship to politics and the existing structures of the state is um, something interesting you've touched on, because of course it can't exist completely uh, in a vacuum from politics, it still must engage with it and ultimately have an effect on it, but with these non-traditional means, um, which makes me also think of, um, I think it was in, in uh, the section Radical Utopias, where you sort of talk about this um, tension of normativity, um, both within and outside of queer, queer theory and the LGBTQ movement, which is also critiques of the the progress that was made, for example, with marriage equality, that is ultimately participating in this universalizing liberalism, which of course is not universal. It is another another norm, another structure of of uh, belonging. Right. So, I mean, basically, I think queer theory is very skeptical of anything that claims to be universal universalizing, right? It, it again, tends to view norms and claims uh, and value claims in particular as essentially insidious in nature, right? That essentially these are not value neutral claims, but they are trying to essentially get you to behave in a certain way um, that may not be in your own interests. And so there's this, it's both very useful um, to critique these sorts of changes. And I think the gay marriage debate is actually a really excellent encapsulation of all of this. Um, and we can maybe return to that in a moment. But it also, as you sort of alluded to, leads to this paralysis where if you see any form of legislation, any form of progress, any form of sort of universalizing claim and you know most modern claims to human rights do pass themselves off as universalizing claims if you see all of those as sort of insidious impositions of normative power it really does limit your ability to articulate any sort of positive vision for change because whatever that vision is, will immediately fall to the same kinds of critiques that you're leveling against other people's visions. And I think this is where the idea of pragmatism plays a big role in, in some of the arguments that you make. And, you know, you do give several examples of, of pragmatic politics, although they were untraditional um, 
strategies within a system that was engaging with with uh, political powers. Um, so, you know, what was what is a way in which queer theory allows us to disrupt the idea of a homogeneous and stable state while also creating a space for a positive vision of it? Right. So I think, um, you know, there is this pragmatic strand both within the history of queer politics and within queer studies today. And I think it tends, I don't totally make this clear in the piece because it's not a sharp disciplinary distinction, but I do think more often than not, queer studies scholars who are on the more empirical side of things, oftentimes historians, tend to be what I would call pragmatists and queer theorists tend to be more on the side of the sort of radical utopianists. Um, And again, I do really try in the book to show how both of these strands of queer thought have a lot to offer. They're both incredibly generative. And in some ways, this book is an effort or an attempt to bring the two together or put them in conversation with each other. Uh, So queer pragmatists, in my view, sort of where queer radicals tend to view the state monolithically as simply a source of violence exercised or, or of normative power exercised against queer people, pragmatists tend to view the state in a much messier way, right? They might understand that, yes, the state has passed laws, for instance, that are damaging to queer people, um, that uh, there is, for instance, police violence that is enacted against queer people. But that doesn't mean there aren't also elements of the state that can do good for queer people or can do good to help deconstruct some of these norms or the kind of normative power that queer theory and queer activism is interested in dismantling. And so in this section, I in particular really draw on the work of Paisley Kara, who's a trans legal scholar. And essentially he articulates this view that the state isn't just a single stable entity, but rather is a nearly sort of infinite collection of different entities and individuals and prerogatives, right? And he, in his own work, really looks at how different offices within what we call the state, uh, for instance, might deal in different ways with the gender identity of the same person. Uh, And so he has this great quote, which I'll only be able to paraphrase, about how a single individual might, you know, have an F standing for female on their driver's license, might be classified as a male by a prison system, uh, and might be registered as a female with their sort of state-provided health insurance. And so, Essentially, the point is that even different branches of the same state are looking at these norms in different ways, are engaging with them. And what that means for politics is that there are openings, there are gaps within that edifice of the state where queer politics can sort of insert itself, can make a case, and can start to change norms. Um, I trace this trend back to the earliest homosexual rights movement in imperial Germany, very much identified with the figure of Magnus Hirschfeld, who was this pioneering sexologist, um, as well as as campaigner for homosexual rights. His big uh, sort of um, goal was to abolish paragraph 175 of the German Penal Code, which was the law that criminalized homosexuality, male homosexuality in Germany. 
he was unsuccessful. It, this wouldn't happen for several more decades, but he really sort of pioneered this approach of trying to work with the state and create legitimacy for queer people. At the same time, historians have really looked at the flaws in this approach as well, right? That he tended to favor this more sort of slow, pragmatic, moderate course, oftentimes at the expense of more marginalized communities. Uh, the historian Laurie Marhofer has written a lot about Magnus Hirschfeld and about the sexual politics of Weimar Germany. Um, I draw a lot on his work as well in making some of these arguments. And so I guess my point about the pragmatists is that it's a much messier view and that in that messiness, there are opportunities to work with the state, to pass legislation, to create new policy that might not achieve the same radical goals of sort of dismantling oppressive norms, but can get us part of the way there. And you also give some, you gave a couple of examples now, but um, also in, in some of the closing sections of the text, you you give some examples of uh, scholars that you feel are opening up some new opportunities in terms of conceiving of a, a positive vision of politics, of queer politics. Can you give us some, some more of those, um, those ideas that you worked with? Yes, very much so. So, I mean, there are a few major thinkers that some of whom I've already mentioned, who helped guide my thinking here. Um, one is the uh, queer theorist Lisa Dugan, who is really at the forefront of a lot of the thought that I'm trying to encapsulate in this text. Uh, she already in the 1990s uh, was talking about the problems that queer theory sort of has with the state. Uh, she wrote a really wonderful essay called Queering the State, in which she makes a lot of the same claims that I'm trying to sort of synthesize here about how, quote unquote, radicals oftentimes slip into a kind of political quietism, right? That in being so critical, you're ultimately endorsing almost a kind of political nihilism, that there's no point in doing politics, because no matter what you do in, in the view of these sort of radicals, it will be complicit with forms of violence and normative power. And Dugan really goes after these people and criticizes them and says, no, actually, queer theory has a lot to offer the state and politics. And that what we need to do is think about our capacity to critique in a productive way that will help us win elections and pass good policy and make something that we could call progress. So Dugan really helps to sort of shape my thinking. Uh, she's also done a lot to criticize the sort of conjunction of neoliberalism and sort of queer theory and queer politics. And that also really helps my thinking about where those two fit together, because that's another sort of piece of the puzzle that we haven't really touched on, which is that starting in the 80s with uh, right-wing neoliberals like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, uh, and then progressing into the 90s with left-wing neoliberals like Bill Clinton and Tony Blair, you have this sort of generation-long effort to kind of dismantle the state or, or think politics against the state. And queer theory and queer politics is very much a part of that. And that's something uh, that Lisa Dugan has really been on the forefront of criticizing. She coined the term homonormativity to talk about how gay marriage and opposition to don't ask, don't tell really fits quite smoothly into a sort of neoliberal politics of recognition that allows queer politics to essentially be co-opted 
by uh, these these larger efforts to sort of apply market rationalities to the state, dismantle the welfare state, and so on. So Dugan's very much a, a thinker that I'm I'm thinking with in this piece. The other sort of more contemporary thinker or, or, or more recent thinker who I really draw on uh, is Evren Savja, who is a scholar of contemporary Turkey. Uh, she recently published a wonderful book called Queer in Translation, which looks at queer politics in contemporary uh, Turkey. And what she does in her final chapter of this book is really critique the critique of queer theory and of the contemporary left. And essentially, she makes this point that in some ways very much following on Dugan's work, that neoliberalism has essentially uh, disenchanted the modern world. It's disenchanted modern politics. And that one reason why the right has been so successful in recent years is that it offers a re-enchanted vision of politics and of the public sphere. Now, it might be a sort of horrifying vision, but it does sort of lend a poignancy and magic almost to life that that the left isn't currently able to to imagine or to offer. And so what Savja offers is this notion of feminist and queer joy and belief in the commons as an alternative to this sort of icy focus on pure critique. And I find that really inspiring. I reviewed Savage's book when it came out and sort of said in the review that it, it to my mind, is a, is a start, right? It's not necessarily the end point. Joy can't be the only thing that binds together a queer politics, but it does seem like a good place to start. And so I'm thinking with these thinkers. I also very much uh, think with Walter Benjamin, the the 20th century German thinker, who's one of queer theory's sort of favorite uh, philosophers to cite and to work with. And I, in particular, look at his critique of power, which is oftentimes translated as a critique of violence. And essentially to make the point that the radical utopianists think that there's this ability to sort of transcend violence or transcend power. And essentially, I don't think that's possible. I think that whatever paradigm we're working with, whatever the goals or the means of your politics are, it's always working within a paradigm of political power, of state power. And so sort of starting from that point, which I get from Benjamin, I then sort of get to Dugan and Savja and argue that what we need to start thinking or conceptualizing is a queer form of democracy. And, you know, this might sound sort of obvious, but I sort of try to make the case that it's not for a couple of reasons. One is that a lot of queer theory is actually quite ambivalent about democracy. Um, the reason being, of course, that many Western democracies have enacted extraordinary violence against queer people. Uh, and so the first point is, well, democracy in some ways is actually a very queer form of government. And the point that I then try to make is that democracy has traditionally been envisioned within a liberal political paradigm uh, in which um, you take the sort of sovereign independence of the individual as the starting point. And the point then is to sort of protect the individual's agency or initiative against the power of the state. And that's where you get sort of traditional liberalism, traditional conceptions of democracy. 
What I think queer theory has to offer instead is through our understanding of normative power and the sort of what Foucault called the capillary functioning of it, we're all sort of bound together, right? None of us exists as a purely individual monad isolated from everyone else. We exist through our relationships um, with other people. And so a queer democracy would instead take that more uh, communitarian, that sort of dense, rich interconnection of individuals as its starting point, and acknowledge essentially that any state that is truly queer in nature has to be predicated on um, not only what Savja calls this feminist and queer joy, um, but also what she identifies as the commons, that we do sort of owe something to each other, um, and moreover, that it's within our power to deliver it. So in thinking about how queer theory can can actually influence our understanding of a flexible and dynamic state, I wanted to ask how you imagine uh, this book's reception. Who would you like to have read this book? How would you incorporate it in your own pedagogy, perhaps? Mm-hmm. So, wow. Okay. Uh, so in terms of pedagogy, you know, I guess my hope is that it does get taken up in queer theory courses. i this, again, is something that came out of a piece of public writing. It, it wasn't a piece of writing in a sort of peer-reviewed journal. And so it's both, again, a sense of where I am in the field, but it's also really meant to be an encapsulation or a snapshot of the field of queer theory. And so my hope is that students and teachers find it useful in some ways as an argumentative summary of the field of queer theory as as a sort of even introduction to the field of queer theory. Um, in my own pedagogy, I actually uh, have assigned it for my graduate course on the history of gender and sexuality. We'll be discussing it um, next week, which may wind up being um, before this episode is released. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that discussion. I do try in my courses to assign work that I've written in part because I think it's helpful for students to get a chance to ask someone how they go about writing something and constructing arguments and getting it published. And so I also obviously sort of see it as as a springboard for that within the context of my own class. Um, In terms of the broader reception, I guess obviously my hope is that scholars find it useful and engage with it. Um, I fully expect that many of my colleagues who I really admire will disagree with me on many points of this. It is meant to be argumentative. I wouldn't say polemic. I don't think, or I've tr- not tried to write it in a polemical tone. I've, I've tried to write it in a spirit of gratitude for all of these amazing thinkers whose work I really admire. Um, but again, I, I do expect that people will disagree with me on the various points that I'm making. And I look forward to the sort of conversations that come out of those disagreements. Um, And then I guess I also hope that other interested readers pick it up. Again, it's a short volume. Uh, It's only about sort of 70 or 80 pages of large text. Um, It's a very sort of slim little pocket volume that you can read on the subway. And so I hope people who have an interest in queer theory and queer history pick it up and take a look, um, queer activists. And I hope at the end of the day, it contributes a small piece to a more robust left in our country and in other countries. I, you know, I, I sort of identify as being on the political left. 
And I do think that that Savja's onto something when she writes that the contemporary left isn't able to enchant and that this is not just an aesthetic problem. This is a real political problem. And so I guess I hope that this work contributes a small bit to that work of re-enchanting the political and re-enchanting progressivism for the 21st century. Well, I hope that you have a good discussion with your students next week. And honestly, I, I also didn't read it as polemical, and I got some good uh, reading recommendations as well from it. I, I, I want to take a look at Savja's work now. Um, so thank you for that as well. Um, so my last question is, what are you working on now? Um, what sort of research projects are you in the midst of? Yeah, so I am actually nearing completion on another longer work of queer history. Uh, This time, it's about queer women in Nazi Germany. This is a topic I've written on for quite a while now. I first encountered several police files about queer women denounced for being lesbian uh, to the Nazi police in 2015, I believe. And so I've written, you know, various book chapters and articles on the topic over the years. I've talked about this to numerous audiences. And then I finally, a year or so ago, decided, you know what, I'm actually going to write a book uh, sort of encapsulating all of this work I've done. So I'm writing that right now. It's tentatively titled, I Will Not Abandon You, Queer Women in Nazi Germany. Uh, It also is going to appear with University of Toronto Press. Hopefully it'll be out um, in 2025 or 2026. But again, I (laughs) have to finish writing it first. Well, I very much look forward to that. And congratulations on finishing such an enormous project after a very successful first monograph and this um, wonderful book as well. So you've been very busy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, I want to thank you for, for joining me today. And I wish you all the best. Thank you. You too. Thank you.